Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Detroit Today is sponsored today by a remarkable group of people. Those are WDET's sustaining members. Thanks so much for your generous ongoing support. You make a difference every day right here at WDET. Also, remember that if you have to step away from the radio for any reason, you don't have to miss out on the conversation here on Detroit Today. You can go to iTunes or wherever it is that you download podcasts. You can download and subscribe to Detroit Today. Take us with you and listen when you are ready. A little later in the show, we are going to talk about Black Panther, the movie phenomenon that hits the silver screen this week. Everyone is, of course, talking about it on social media. We are going to have our social media manager, Candace Fortman, into the studio to talk uh, about her reaction to it. Also, David Dennis, an adjunct professor of journalism at Morehouse and writer for Interactive One, will be here. He is an old-school comic book nerd and has been into Black Panther for a really long time. So that's going to be a great conversation you will not want to miss. It'll get started at just about half past the hour today. But first, one in seven white families in the United States are now millionaires. For black families, that number is one in 50 families. Those wealth disparities in the United States continue to grow wider between the rich and the poor, and especially between black and white. And they reach all the way back to the beginning of our nation, in the trade of black people as property. But the existence of black wealth is also not new. And for some, the path between enslavement and millionaire status was direct and astonishing, according to the author of a new book titled Black Fortunes, the story of the first six African-Americans who escaped slavery and became millionaires. Joining us now is that author, Shamari Wills. Uh, Shamari, welcome to Detroit Today. Hey, Stephen. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Uh, I love the stories that are in this book, six stories about people who went from slavery uh, to being uh, millionaires. And, uh, you know, I I think a lot of people wouldn't believe these stories if they weren't documented the way they are. Uh, They're so so incredible. But I want to start with the fact that one of these six people is actually your great, great, great grandfather. So I want you to talk about that. And uh, I would imagine that that was a lot of the motivation for wanting to write this book. Right, right. So it's actually my great, great uncle. My great, great grandfather was also a businessman, but he wasn't a millionaire. Okay. okay. Uh, My (laughs) great, great uncle was uh, John Mott Drew. Uh, He was a businessman in the Philadelphia area. He uh, started a bus line to help the uh, folks in the black suburbs get to work in Philadelphia and Lansdowne. And it's pretty, pretty successful. And he funneled the profits from that into the stock market in the 20s. And in 1929, right before the big crash, he pulled all his money out and, you know, basically became a millionaire, retired and uh, bought a Negro League baseball team. So that was kind of a story that was always repeated uh, in my family. So that was rattling around in my head. And, you know, somehow that uh, that turned into this book. Yeah. Uh, so talk about this idea of moving from slave uh, status, uh, enslavement, and doing something that makes you into a millionaire. I mean, obviously, uh, the hurdles to that would have been uh, un- unbelievable. But the narratives around how that happened, I think, are are, are sort of just as, as fascinating. It's not just about the resistance to it or the difficulty, uh, but I guess the perseverance and and the mission that is evident in these stories, the idea 
that these are people who didn't just necessarily want to be rich, but also wanted to do some pretty important things. Yeah, you know, and I don't think any of them started out, you know, with the idea of trying to become a millionaire. <laughs> right. They, uh, they, they wanted to be, you know, free and to have liberty uh, more than anything else. So the, the six folks in the book, um, they all come out of the slave period in different ways. Uh, one of them was actually a slave who escaped and became a millionaire in Memphis. He famously jumped out of a Confederate sh- ship and swam the freedom in the Mississippi. Another was a free black woman, but, you know, she had to dodge, you know, slave catchers and the Fugitive Slave Act her whole life. And then the others are all the uh, children of slaves who were born either right at the end of slavery or just after. Uh, you know, so, you know, after they got free, uh, a lot of them went into business and their businesses just grew and grew and grew because they were just really brilliant, brilliant business people. Um, you know, so, and, you know, they used the profits of their business to help black folks, you know, fight for liberation. Right. So, yeah. you know, I think they were motivated for for that reason, among many others. So so one that jumps out to me is uh, Mary Ellen Pleasant. Tell us who she was and uh, and what she did. Well, I love Mary Ellen Pleasant. I think it was W.E.B. Du Bois that said if she were born a white man, she would have been president. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so she's just an amazing woman, right? So she was uh, from Massachusetts. She was free in Massachusetts. And when she got to, uh, when she when she reached maturity, she went to San Francisco to participate in the gold rush, if you can believe it, which is not just amazing because there were very few black people in the gold rush. Yeah. There were very few. few There's not women. a lot of women so really, either, right? <laughs> yeah, it was a very, it was a frontier. It was a really, really rough uh, place. But she went out there uh, and she became a uh, real estate investor, a commodities trader. She traded silver. Um, and, you know, she became very, very rich. And she actually used the money. One of the first things she did with it was give $45,000 to John Brown to fund his raid on Harper's Ferry. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, she was just an amazing woman. And all her life, she just used the proceeds of her incredible wealth to help advance the causes of equality and liberation and suffrage, uh, you know, throughout her, you know, incredible life. Yeah. Uh, This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Shamari Wells. He's the author of a book called Black Fortunes, the story of the first six African-Americans who escaped slavery and became millionaires. We were talking about that book and about the idea of wealth, black wealth in this country. Where does it come from? How has it sustained? How has it grown? And what was it used for uh, when it was originally attained. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today will work you into the conversation. Call and tell us what you think of the early emergence of black wealth. Talk about black wealth Today, the connections between the two uh, and mission as it pertains to black wealth. Uh, Shamar, I want to I want to talk about what happened to these people who attained this wealth and what happened to their families over time. One of the things that uh, that that's really important here in America historically is that you know wealth is intergenerational. Uh, the, the 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 great wealth that we see in America today, especially among people of European descent is is handed down uh, over time. Uh, talk about what happened to these six people uh, and their 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 progeny uh, over over the centuries. Were they able to retain any of that wealth? Well, you know, a few of them were. One in particular, uh, Robert Reed Church in the book, his uh, daughter, Mary Church Terrell, she went on to became a become a really famous activist. And, you know, that wealth did stay in that family line for quite a while. 
But most of uh, most of the folks in my book, they had to fight so hard to protect their wealth mm-hmm. uh, their entire life because even though, you know, the free market and, you know, obviously the Emancipation Proclamation uh, and the uh, eradication of slavery allowed them to be free and have certain rights, but... Uh, you know, the infrastructure was not there for them to protect their wealth. A lot of times they couldn't get patents for their intellectual property. They couldn't sue in court if someone defrauded them. And, you know, most of them at some point in their life, they were assaulted, attacked, or they had assassination attempts in many cases. So they had to devote so much of their energy in their life to defending their wealth that, you know, they, these people were not raising, you know, massive families. And yeah. So we don't see the, the wealth become dynastic in the way that white wealth did. Uh, because they had to work so hard to defend it. Yeah, uh, and that's one of the things that I think uh, <clears throat> gives this book sort of urgency. I mean, I, I, there is a lot of discussion right now and and historically about this wealth gap that exists between uh, African Americans and people of European descent in this uh, in this country. And and when you look at these stories and the kinds of things that attended black wealth, the kind of difficulties that attended this early black wealth, you begin to understand why, for instance, uh, these are not families uh, like the Carnegie's, or, for instance, or, or the, the, the other sort of uh, uh, historically wealthy uh, families of European descent in this country. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the first black millionaire, as I write about, about um, uh, in my book, William Eliadsdorf, he actually had his entire wealth stolen. He was worth about $1.3 million, um, and that's in 19th century dollars, 1949 dollars, uh, when he died. And a white industrialist basically went to the Caribbean, found his mother, uh, and had her sign over his entire estate for $75,000. And, you know, things like that, you know, were actually very common with black people that had resources, that, you know, someone would get to them, they gain control of the resources, and then there was really no redress in the courts a lot of times. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page. Uh, put your comments there. Or go to Twitter and hashtag us. We'll work you into the conversation. Jay in Westland, you're up first on Detroit Today. Hi, 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 Stephen. Hey, how are you? I'm good. Uh, thanks for the program. Um, I'm originally from uh, Cameroon in West Africa, mm-hmm. and um, I have this 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 belief and suggestion or whatever you can put or you can call it that one thing that Black Americans are not doing is investing in Africa. What I'm saying is, all those who own wealth in Africa are neo-colonialists who don't care about the black Africans. And I think it is time that black Americans own the shell companies in Africa, own the BP companies in Africa. Hmm. This is what I'm saying. Right now, I'm uh, from Cameroon, the British, former British Southern Cameroon, is one of the richest countries in Africa. Right now, it is controlled by France. France owns all the oil companies, and the guys are asking for little freedom. But the way they are being killed by the French, because of total that is exploiting their resources. Right. I think the black Africans in America, with money need to send away all these 
All the, neocolonialism that's Africa, really, uh, Jay, and it's facing that well. Jay, that's a fascinating. Uh, I'm telling you, if, if uh, I mean, I, I will send you a, a letter. If yeah. any black person wants to own oil wells in Africa, there is an access route. Yeah. <laughs> Team yourself together, send out these Europeans and own the world of Africa and project the image of the black man globally. Right. Jay, I really appreciate the call and the and the and the thoughts. It's not something that I would have come to uh, without that that prompt. I think uh, Shamari Wills, I'll give you a chance to to address that the connection between <clears throat> black wealth here, uh, black wealth in in Africa. Uh, was that something that uh, these early millionaires thought about? Is that something maybe uh, black people ought to be thinking about now? Yeah, I mean, well, there's a history there with it. Um, you know, Booker T. Washington, who's a big part of the book, he started something yes. called the National Negro Business League uh, to sort of bring black entrepreneurs together around the turn of the century. Uh, he was a big advocate of reinvestment in Africa. Now, as we know, uh, the history with that is not so good with Liberia. Mm -hmm. You know, and some of the black folks that went back to Africa, there was a lot of friction there. Um, you know, and I think in a lot of ways that history there um, the, you know, sort of the bad history with African-Americans going back to Africa and reinvesting, I think may be holding people back from going back. I think that, uh, you know, I think it's a brilliant idea. I do think more, um, you know, African-American entrepreneurs need to look at Africa yeah. uh, because everybody else is there. Uh, you know, I think African-Americans, I think we should be there, too. Yeah. Uh, I also want to ask you about the 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 possible sort of misuse of these stories um, and by that, what I mean is the idea of looking at people who went from being slaves to millionaires, for instance, uh, looking at all the perseverance and, and uh, drive that that required, and then looking at the condition that uh, the economic condition of African-Americans today and saying, well, maybe you just need to work harder like these folks. Maybe you just need to be more like these people. I mean, it's something that black people hear a lot. Uh, in comparison to other ethnic minorities in our society, uh, but but here it's almost uh, well, it's it, it's sort of uh, an internal comparison that could that that could be made uh, quite falsely. Have you heard any sort of sort of narrative uh, pushback uh, on on your work in that vein? Yeah, you know, I've talked to some folks who basically feel like you know the stories of black millionaires, especially those today. Uh, can be used to shame African-Americans who are struggling with poverty, mm -hmm. uh, struggling with economic disparities. I think this book actually makes the opposite point uh, because through all that these folks went through and all that they had to overcome, uh, slavery, um, being shot, uh, being put in jail, assassination attempts, just for being black and wealthy. You know, these people were not criminals. They, you know, were not doing anything untoward. Uh, it, it, it's evident, you know, how, you, you know, the struggles black folks have to go through to uh, become economically successful today. The other point that it makes is it shows that the, the potential of African-Americans, um, you know, a lot of times, uh, you know, when we talk about African-Americans and we talk about disparities, it can border on nihilistic that black, you know, black folks will never be able to achieve equality. Maybe it's just something innate in us that doesn't allow us to do it. And, you know, this book makes the point that African-Americans have just a tremendous potential and can achieve as much as everybody else while also, you know, looking at some of the obstacles uh, to, to doing that. Yeah. Uh, you talk about the, the hardship these folks faced and the violence that they faced. Uh, uh, Jeremiah Hamilton 
is one of the stories in the book, and it's in a chapter that's about uh, the near the near lynching of Jeremiah Hamilton uh, in New York in 1863. Yeah, in this book, I talk about during the Civil War draft riots. For those folks that don't know, it was uh, basically when the draft was announced for the Civil War effort for the Union Army. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and a lot of uh, white males and white young men were furious. Uh, that they were going to be forced to fight for essentially the liberation of black people. So what they did is they took to the streets here in New York, mostly in lower Manhattan, and, you know, they started attacking federal buildings and burning them down and attacking uh, African-Americans, just all sorts of horrible things, lynchings, crucifixions. uh, crucifixions. Uh, And, you know, one of the uh, prime targets was Jeremiah Hamilton, who was the only black millionaire in New York at the time. Mm -hmm. And they went to his house, a group of men, uh, lynch mob, went to his house, and they were going to lynch him from the lamppost outside of his brownstone in lower Manhattan, if you can believe it. And Jeremiah Hamilton was rich. He was dashing. He was powerful. He was, you know, incredible stockbroker. And what actually saved him, as I write about in this book, it wasn't his money. It wasn't his power. He uh, ran out of his house, jumped over his back fence, and ran away, sprinted yeah. to safety. It was his, his, the fleetness of his feet, not his uh, money that saved him. Yeah. Okay, Shamari Wells, author of Black Fortunes, the story of the first six African Americans who escaped slavery and became millionaires. Thanks very much for being with us on Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. Up next, we are going to talk about the movie phenomenon hitting the silver screen this week, Black Panther. Stay with us on Detroit Today.